see you all. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open at uh, Philippians 1, beginning verse 27. I'll pray briefly and then we'll uh, look at this part of God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for Paul's letter uh, to the church at Philippi that you preserved and kept for us, uh, for our instruction, for our correction, uh, for helping us to become more like Jesus. We pray that as we uh, uh, consider what it is that Paul writes this morning, you give us open hearts and minds, and that through it we be shaped to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. Who is your daddy... And what does he do? The quote is from, does anyone know? Kindergarten Cop, that's right. Well, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, the most quotable of uh, actors, in his role as detective as John Kimball, who's playing a teacher in the 1990s film Kindergarten Cop. Uh, Very importantly, can anyone actually say it with the accent? That's what it takes to be a rector these days. It's very good. Uh, little did Arnie realise, I think, but he was giving expression to the two fundamental parts that give us the most basic bits of information about people and things. To use some big fancy technical words, all basic information about people and things can pretty much be broken down into ontology, that is what something is, it's being, and utility, what it does. But rather than big fancy technical words, I think it's much more fun to see it expressed in popular media. So, who is your daddy and what does he do? Uh, As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you all a bunch of quotes from books and films, and if you know where they come from, be an unruly mob, won't you, and yell them out. (laughs) Number one, I'm stationed up in the Gamma Quadrant of Sector 4 as a member of the Elite Universe Protection... Buzz Lightyear, but Toy Story 1, but yes, very good. (laughs) And there he is, and there they are. Uh, Ladies, as as soon as you know, yell it out. I want to see how how long this takes. It is a truth... (laughs) (laughs) Does anyone know the quote, the whole thing? Very good. Well, that's why she married me. So, um, yeah, well, <laughs> it's all right. If I were a rich man. Anyway, um, this one's a little bit harder, so I'll attempt a feeble attempt at the accent. Uh, directive classified. Name. Oh. You're supposed to be quiet like a Bible study. Everyone else will <laughs> This because they're from our house, you see. Um, what's it from? Say it now. Wally. Eva. Wally. Very good. Uh, okay. It's a pity Birdie's gone out, but uh, I. <laughs> Just go to the next slide, Nola. There he is. And a thumping good one at that, I'd wager. Uh, here we go, back to uh, the, the, my most uh, quotable actor. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. Yeah, 
Yes, that one's two. Very good. And the one that I suspect many would be waiting for, my name is Inigo Montoya. (laughs) I like this one because it's as to the point as it gets, right? Who I am and what I do. Well, my name is Inigo Montoya. You could, my father, prepare to die from the Princess Bride. You see, now, once this is on your mind, that all information can basically, about people and things, can basically be, be, be reduced to ontology and utility, or who is your daddy and what does he do? You see it everywhere. It's everywhere. That's just the way God designed us. That's the way we think about stuff. Now, of course, um, people and things are far more than what we can just put into the two basic categories, right? But far more than what we can reduce them to. But once you do get those two things, you've basically got the most important information that you can get. Now, why on earth am I telling you this? Well, it just so happens that in this next section of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, which we're looking at today, Paul gives us the really basic and therefore the really important info about what it means to be followers of Jesus. In other words, if you've got a friend or a family member who wonders what it means that you're a Christian, well, then this part of God's Word, I think, is especially apt, especially good. Because it gives a, a, what I think is a reasonably simple explanation at the most basic level of who we are and what we do. Now, from the beginning of the letter, we've seen that Paul, who's sitting in a jail somewhere, possibly Rome, is writing about what he's doing. You know, I'm sitting in this prison and the palace guard, alert, and he, he, he tells about what he's praying. This is what I'm praying for all of you. And he tells them what his priorities are that you know, whether by false or true motives, Christ is preaching, because of that he rejoices. But now he turns his attention a little more specifically to his uh, readers, the, the audience that are receiving the letter, and uh, as, he's found, as their founding apostle, he teaches them about who they are to be and what they are to do. And the first thing he teaches is that the Philippians are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Just as Paul spent his time defending and confirming the gospel, so they too, and by extension us as Christians, we are to strive, to struggle for the faith of the gospel. Now, what does that mean, to struggle for the faith of the gospel? Well, let's see how Paul explains it. He starts pretty broadly. Uh, Verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, "'Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ.'" Now, for those of you that that, um, read the Holman or the ESV, if that's your personal Bible, your translation for that that verse will say something like, only let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or or just one thing. Uh, So the, the one thing, the whatever happens thing, that one important thing that should be how we sort of define how, how Christians conduct themselves, well, it's in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what does it mean to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, look at the rest of what Paul says from uh, halfway through verse 27. He says, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And so that little bit of context makes it clear that what Paul's speaking about is something to do that invites opposition. We are to stand firm and to strive together without being frightened of opposition. 
And of course, all throughout the New Testament and all throughout Philippians, the thing that brings opposition to Christians is, of course, when they proclaim the gospel message. The very thing that Paul's been talking about is what's happening uh, in, in the bit of the letter before this. So I take it that to be striving together for the faith of the gospel means that despite opposition, we keep living with Jesus as Lord, which means we'll keep telling other people about him. That's what Paul was doing. That's what he wants the Philippians to do. As a matter of fact, living in obedience to Jesus and telling other people the gospel, despite opposition, is actually so fundamental to who Christians are that it's, it, that it's in the end a very clear way to tell the difference between who is saved and who is not. So the second half of verse 28, Paul says, this is a sign to them, that is the, the opposers, that they will be destroyed, but that you, in other words, the you who are striving for the faith of the gospel, will be saved. The great sign that somebody is going to be destroyed is that they oppose the spreading of the gospel message, just as they oppose the people who are spreading it. A great sign that someone will be saved is that they proclaim the gospel, even when there's opposition, because they desperately want other people to be saved. Now, at this point, it may be the case that Paul anticipates a certain danger. See, perhaps there's a danger that his readers might think that preaching the gospel in the face of opposition is the thing that gets you saved, which, of course, would not be correct, would it? Maybe his readers will think that the way they get into heaven is by doing lots of evangelism. Not so. And so he reminds them by just adding those last four words in verse 28, which I didn't read before, but basically he says evangelism, it's a sign that you'll be saved, and notice the last four words, and that by God. It's not your work that makes you saved. It's God alone, through the, the personal work of his son Jesus, that saves anybody. So doing evangelism is not what gets you into heaven. It's God alone who saves you. But it's understandable that Paul would have to remind his readers of that because proclaiming the gospel, defending and confirming the gospel, even when there's opposition, is just so basic and fundamental to who Christians are and what we do. So who are Christians and what do we do? Well, we are people who live by and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Another pretty good way of putting it with fewer words, will be to say that, well, we're disciple-making disciples. You might have heard that one around the traps every now and then. However, it is normal for disciple-making disciples to be people who suffer. Verse 29, Paul writes, For it is being granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, I find that really interesting, that verse 30, because the Philippians are not in prison. And yet, Paul is saying they are going through the same struggle that he was and now is going through. Paul in jail, Philippians not in jail, they're going through the same struggle as him. And that's because the struggle is not actually about whether or not you're in prison. 
It's not really about the results of the, the opposition that you face. It's about standing firm in the gospel and proclaiming it without fear, even though it will always bring opposition. So our lives are about being disciples of Jesus and making other people disciples of Jesus, even though it involves suffering too. Now, who wants to sign up for that, eh? Life of suffering, telling other people about Jesus, we live by that gospel, knowing that there'll be opposition. Well, that's who Christians are. That's what we do. And I actually think it's a wonderful idea. And let me tell you what. Before I go on to the next point, I'll say just a few things about the reality of suffering. See, suffering can and does come simply as a result of the fallenness of the world in which we live. And that kind of suffering often will, will appear, or in reality, will have no ultimate goal or purpose. But for Christians, we've been told just now that suffering is done for Christ. Suffering can be done for Christ, at least. And that means that suffering for us can actually, I think, affirm our trust. It can affirm the eventual ruin of those who oppose us. It can refine us in terms of godliness. And it has the ultimate goal of the eternal reward that awaits us in heaven. To be a follower of Jesus is not for wimps. Because to be a follower of Jesus means giving up the comforts and the securities that this world will afford us. To be granted belief in Jesus means also to be granted the privilege of suffering for him. Jesus was actually very good at turning people away because they couldn't stomach the thought that being his disciple meant giving up their very lives. But in the big scheme of things, and this is why I think it's a great idea, in the big scheme of things, being a follower of Jesus is about a billion times better than being a follower of yourself and of your own goals and priorities. You see, because suffering comes sooner or later to all people, no matter what. If you haven't suffered, it's just you haven't lived long enough yet. Suffering comes sooner or later to all people. You can enjoy the outward and fickle comforts of a materialistic world for a time. But when the suffering comes, it'll be without meaning, without purpose. People will invent a purpose, of course. Oh, it's the universe trying to make you a better person or some tripe like that. But it's propaganda. It's designed to shield you from the unthinkably horrible reality that life outside of Christ is actually desolate and is meaningless. Would you rather suffer for yourself or suffer for the one who suffered death in your place so that you might ultimately be raised to eternal life. I know what kind of suffering I want to choose. Would you rather your suffering be meaningless and ultimately hopeless? Would you rather your suffering be done in the face of such wonderful and sure hope that you can even rejoice like Paul as it happens? If you've not yet given your life wholeheartedly to Jesus, or even worse, if you've tried to have your own comfort and security in this world and kind of squeeze in the gospel so that it kind of fits and aligns with your priorities, even though it's obviously no longer the true gospel, then I basically shamelessly urge you to repent. Turn around, renounce your citizenship of this world and live as a citizen of heaven. 
Take up your cross. It's another words of saying, give up your life. Take up your cross and enjoy the privilege of suffering for Jesus in the knowledge that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who are Christians and what do we do? We live by and proclaim the gospel of Christ and we suffer for him. That is what's being granted to us. And as we do that, we do it with what I've called a, uh, a Christ-shaped attitude. Uh, read with me from the beginning of chapter 2 as Paul continues. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, uh, juvenile Ben's going to strike again. <laughs> I just thought this was hilarious. As you look at this in its, the, the, the original language, uh, the New Testament writers write in Greek, the, the, the same word that they translate for, for um, tenderness, like, you know, the idea of being tender or compassionate towards someone, the word is entrails or intestines. Like, so the idea is that you sort of, when you long for something, you, you feel it in your, your guts. I just think that's beautiful. <laughs> Do you long for me with your guts, your entrails? Uh, yes, sorry. Bye-bye, juvenile Ben. Now, obviously, more importantly, the way Paul speaks here in verses 1 and 2 is his rhetorical speech. It's a bit of a device. You see, what he does, he, he Paul deliberately understates things to a stupid degree because it's going to immediately provoke you to, to think of what the actual meaning should be, right? So, it's like he's saying, even if you're a tiny bit Christian, which, of course, there's no such thing, either you're 100 or you're not, you know, you're in a... And, and the moment you think that, you've actually got what Paul wants you to think. And in speaking this way, he, he, he affirms some wonderful things about knowing Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Uh, so, you know, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with God, well, of course we do, you're supposed to think. What could possibly produce more courageousness in people than knowing that no matter what happens in the here and now, your true life is with Jesus. You're in Christ. You have, you, you're united with Christ. Seated at the right hand of God in heaven. No matter what happens to you here and now, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you'll appear with him. And go, of course you've got courage uh, from that sort of thing. Or afterwards, if you've got any comfort from his love, well, of course you do. If even death is the gain for a Christian, then you can rejoice whilst you're in prison. That's very comforting during imprisonment, to know that kind of love of Christ. There's tremendous comfort in knowing that the day will soon come when Jesus will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So assuming all these things, in other words, says Paul, that we read in verses 1, to, uh, one and 2, then verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, I've got to say, I thought as that kid's talk was done this morning, that, <laughs> that nailed it better than I think I can. You know, that was, that was wonderful in expressing this, uh, this truth. As a matter of fact, I reckon you could even have a whole sermon on just these two verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Um, selfish ambition means living in such a way that prioritises 
your needs above the needs of others. That's what selfish ambition is. And of course, we're to do the opposite. In humility, in humility, we're to value others above ourselves. We're not to please ourselves and seek our own comfort. We're to look to the needs of others and serve them in humility. The ultimate model for the way we're to relate to one another then is, of course, the ultimate servant, the gospel of of the Lord Jesus Christ, which shows the way that he related to us, which, of course, is why Paul goes there next. Verse 5, in your relationships with with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Now, this is one of the, thing, the parts of, uh, of the Bible I think we often just miss how extreme and extraordinary this really is. It, it's the biggest and most inconceivable how low can you go moment that Jesus came into the world as a baby with human flesh. The creator of the universe, the eternal son of the father, God himself, in the person of the Son, would add humanity to himself. He would come into the world as a crying, weak baby in an animal trough and have his pooey bum wiped by a sinful mum. That's incredible. There is no comparison to the extremity of just how low Jesus humbled himself in becoming a man. And already, that greatest act of humility that we could ever, that the world could ever possibly know, should should say, "Well, you can't go any more than that." But he can. That's where that's where he was already. But he goes further, verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He did it again. He humbled himself more. How? By becoming obedient to death, even death, and that's the lowest of the low, isn't it? Even death on a cross. There is like no more descent of kind of glory that one could possibly take than what Jesus, the path that he's taken. And of course, the message at the heart of Christianity is that Jesus did that. He suffered that death not to suit himself, not for his own interests, but in order to meet our greatest need, namely the forgiveness of sin. See, all of us have, in our hearts, pride. Pride's an excellent descriptor of, of sin because pride basically is, is, is kind of like the thing that says, no, God, I don't need you, I'm okay without you, I, I can decide what's best for me, not you. In the end, it's just another expression of horrible rebellion against God and it means that, well, he's not going to live with that. He's not going to have that. You can't rock up to a stranger's house, bang on the door with your suitcases packed and say, let me in, I'm going to live with you. That's not good. How much less the God of the universe with whom you have no relationship on account of your sin. Jesus' death takes that away. He turns aside all the wrath and anger that God rightly has against sin, pays the price in full. Jesus went through that whole process in order to meet our greatest needs. And notice, 
that it's actually because of Jesus' life of humility, his incredible descent and service of others, it's because of that that he was then exalted. Verse 9, have a look with me, verse 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's hard not to have the song in your head if you know the song, right? Yeah, I'm just checking. The pattern of Jesus' life is to become our story. We are to be like him, looking to the knees of others in great humility, in the wonderful knowledge that we will one day, like him, be exalted with him in glory. And that actually says that if you're a Christian, you're on the opposite trajectory to the rest of the world. See, the rest of the world is full of people seeking their own comfort, not the needs of others, ultimately. But of course, they will one day be brought to kneel before Jesus. Christians, we kneel before Jesus and will one day be brought to incredible comfort as we're exalted in heaven. Now, I'd love to kind of wrap up after that with a few implications. But there's one more point, and it is a bit of a is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's so important that I'm going to make it. Namely, we see something of the, the divinity of Jesus in this part of God's Word. And the reason I bring it up is because this is something that always gets attacked uh, from the world and from, from other uh, uh, um, false teachers. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, will say that Jesus was created by God, but he was never truly, fully God. And... Uh, I want to say that that's actually a, a salvation issue. This doctrine that Jesus is fully God uh, is something so important that it's the difference to whether you're uh, a Christian or not. Uh, I know that sounds full on, but let me show you something from this part of God's Word by comparing it with a part of the Old Testament uh, that I think affirms unquestionably that Jesus is to be seen as the one and only God. And the way I'm going to do that, would you believe, is to get a Bible for a start kind of helpful. And I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 45. You can do this as well. And uh, if you've got someone trying to convince you that Jesus is not Yahweh, the true one and only God of the Old Testament, or that he is not Jehovah, the true God, this is a wonderful thing. Uh, that, that you, can, you can show someone. It's easy. It's two references to remember, Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2, right? Now, I'm not going to teach on Isaiah 45. That's another whole sermon, right? Don't worry if you don't understand what's going on in Isaiah 5. The, 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 the things that, that, I'll, that you need to hear from this, I'll emphasise very strongly. I'm going to read as fast as I possibly can. Has everyone got Isaiah 45? You've got Isaiah 45? Here we go. I'm harnessing the coffee. Here we go. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their armour and open doors before him so that no gates, uh, so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will lever the mountains. I will break down uh, gates and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord. God's name in the Old Testament is Yahweh or Jehovah, if you like. That I am Jehovah, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. 
For the sake of Jacob, my servant, for Israel, Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, that though you do not uh, acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Question, is there any God apart from this God? No. Yeah, I don't believe you. Let's keep going. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Question, is there any other God apart from this God? No, no you're not convinced. Verse 7, uh, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds among potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders of the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. That's God, right, who created the world? It was God, right, who stretched out the heavens. Yeah, just checking. Verse 13, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will re rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and all those Torsobayans, they will come over to you and they will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Is this the only true God? Just checking. Verse 15, truly you are a God who has been hiding himself and the God and saviour of Israel. All oh, the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. He will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. But this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens... He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is one God, Yahweh, Jehovah, there is no other. All convinced? Yeah. Pretty good. Verse 19, I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Saviour, there is none but me. So there's one God, just checking. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Okay. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how many times you can get this? And so we're all really, really, really at the edge of our seats now because look what he says next, verse 23. By myself, I have sworn. He can't swear by God or anyone I because he's the only two. So he swears by himself. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Of all the promises and the things that God said, this one gets the most builder. I swear to you, says God, I'm the only true God and this is what I'm going to, I'm going to utter this word in maximum integrity as if there could be anything other than maximum integrity for God. But here it is. What's the word he makes? Well, before me, 
every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. Now, the Jewish people, including the Apostle Paul, in the first century, believed in one and only one true God. As a matter of fact, if you're a good Jew, every day you would recite this thing called Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai, Lahaina, Adonai, Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There is one and only one true God, and he has sworn that before him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And what does Paul write? In Philippians chapter 2, go back to Philippians chapter 2, where we are. You get there faster than I am at this rate. Philippians chapter 2, and here he writes, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and on the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God, to the glory of God the Father. How could a fiercely monotheistic Jew ever dare write such a thing? Either it is the ultimate blasphemy and heretical teaching, or Jesus Christ is truly the one and only God. You guys see it? I've been waiting for the Jehovah's Witnesses to come around for this one, but they haven't done it yet. Because, you see, they mistranslate their scriptures, but they haven't thought about how the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, play off one each other, and I'd really like to see how that works. I give you that as a tool, A, for your important learning, and B, so that you can show others who doubt the divinity of Jesus. Two references, Isaiah 45, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Now that we've done that little tangent, thanks for bearing with me, by the way, uh, who are we as Christians and what do we do? Well, we've seen fairly clearly from Paul's letter to the Philippians that we are people who strive, stand together for the faith of the gospel. That means living in obedience to him, and that can't help but mean proclaiming him, even in the face of opposition. Now, how much does proclaiming Christ, even in the face of opposition, factor in to how we prioritise our lives, how we live? Well... That's a question that we all need to ask ourselves and I think the Word of God addresses to us uh, this time. But I'm going to paint for you just a couple of hypothetical scenarios that I think might be inspiring. Uh, they're hypothetical, although they've got bits of truth, right? They're just my, from my collective experience, right? So I know of someone who decided that their job provided more income than what they needed in order to live satisfactorily. This person said to their boss, can I please work a day less, take a pay cut, so that I might be able to go and help scripture teaching in the local primary school? Now, that's actually, for me, that's two people that fit that example that I know who've done it, and I'm sure there's many more. From the world's perspective, that's crazy, you're getting less comfort, 
less money, less financial security, in order to tell people the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who we are, and that's what we do. I know of uh, other people who think in terms of their, uh, I don't like the word, you know, you've heard me say this, but their retirement, right? You're going to retire from your job. It just means you're going to retire from a job so that you can keep being a Christian without the, you know, work getting in the way. But they look to their retirement not as a, a thing of, oh, you know, I'll get to travel and sort of, you know, sit back and run. Now that I won't have work in the way, here's what I can do to serve by, and I actually heard an example of uh, someone doing this yesterday when I was at base camp, so a very old person said, I'm going to join the evening congregation with all the young folks so that I can be a good encouragement to them. And maybe at that point their deafness was a gift from God so that they could stomach what was going on there in order to serve other people. That's who we are, that's what we do. Um, I knew a fellow who uh, was younger than me when he decided, I'm going to pursue singleness. That is, I'm not going to look to get married because I know that I'll be much more free to tell people the good news about Jesus. And uh, this, I know one guy who fit this category who at the last minute when there was going to be a youth camp, there was a, a, a massive problem. Um, they, they couldn't get enough transport. So this guy, within a couple of hours or something, had rented a bus, had driven and took all the kids on the youth camp and just stayed there the weekend and took them back. He was free to do that because he made the choice to think, well, I can serve Jesus by, you know, remaining single. Now, I can't say what it is for each of us, but I can urge you, and, and really I think the Scriptures do this anyway, to think about how how it is that in your circumstance you can prioritise proclaiming the gospel even in the face of opposition. It's something, would you believe, I need to think about quite a lot. I mean, one of the wonderful things about being in ministry full-time is that I'm relieved of the burden of having to work a secular job so that I can do what Christians would want to do all the time, which is build up the church and speak to other people about Jesus. But if I don't put that on my agenda, you know I'm going to get slack, right? That's what's going to happen. Uh, so, pray for one another, pray for your ministers, that we keep on the front foot, so to speak. That we keep being who we are, which are people who live for Jesus, but proclaim his message, even in spite of opposition. Let me pray that God will help us in that right now. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our Lord and Saviour Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you've kindly granted us not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Uh, because such suffering actually comes with incredible hope uh, and the sure certainty uh, of a great reward. Father, please help us all to renounce our citizenship to this world and embrace citizenship in heaven. Help us, Father, to so prioritise the spread of the gospel, even in the face of opposition, uh, that we put that above even the things that this world tells us are absolutely essential, like financial security and family and, and those sorts of things. And uh, Father, we pray that where great strengthening is required for us to do this, that by your Holy Spirit you grant it, uh, so that we be more like Jesus and bring more glory and honour to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.